Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the Pulp.net, your link to the online world of the Pulp magazines, for over 20 years, online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, David Saunders, artist, art historian, and son of pulp artist, Norman Saunders, talks about women artists in the pulps. The talk was recorded on August 16, 2019, at Pulp Fest 2019, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thank you. Oh, you're supposed to clap now. Come on, man. All right. All right. So when I first... Yeah. When I first suggested the, this, I, this topic um, for Pulp Fest... Yeah, Mike said, uh, oh, that's a great idea. Women pulp artists, because it's like the year of the hashtag Me Too movement and everything. And um, he said, so let's call it Babes in Bikinis with Brushes. <laughs> I was like, what the? No, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. And so then my daughter, I said, this boob came up with this idea, Babes in Bikinis with Brushes. And, and my daughter said, <laughs> It was worse. And my daughter said, what about the secret life of women pulp artists? And I go, oh, that, that, that sounds good, yeah. So we had to, <clears throat> anyway. So <clears throat> uh, I have this uh, website for pulp artists and um, uh, you know, a lot of them are just really great people. I, I knew a lot of them because my dad was one. And um, it was kind of, the more I looked into it, the more um, uh, one time I brought home some pulps and said, are these by you, Dad? And he goes, oh, are you kidding? These aren't by me. This is Rudy Bularski. Don't you know the difference? <laughs> and so I, uh, I, I was like 10. And so I was like, well, I better learn the difference between these guys. So I started then like trying to figure out who they were and stuff. But it's, so I've documented over uh, 700 pulp artists. And um, I was surprised that of that, I've only found 19 that are women. And so, you know, the field of illustration is highly competitive. Um, and the guys, you know, fought for their work. They liked each other, they, they, they played together and stuff. But, you know, they, they were cutthroat about, you know, um, getting the jobs because they, they really needed them. So you can sort of imagine that, um, I don't know, I'm bad at math, but the percentage of 19 out of 700, uh, you can see that the women, the deck was stacked against them. So they, they must have been people with, you know, a tremendous amount of talent and perseverance to try and, um, you know, face the personal challenges of, you know, sexist world um, and gender challenges and stuff. And so each of these women that we're going to look at tonight, because we can't do all 19 in 45 minutes, it would be disrespectful. So I, I picked out eight of them, and, um, but they're probably all have lived up heroic lives. So we're going to look at a little of their work and uh, tell you brief little stories about um, their lives. So each artist, kind of like in terms of fashion or something like that, their career only lasts a limited amount of time before they have to either change or, or move on to something else. So uh, all illustration is kind of a little bit, has one foot in, in the world of fashion in a sense. But um, so I mostly document people from 1900 to 1950 of that first half of the century. Um, so each of these artists kind of covers a different little era. So I've just organized them in terms of um, the earliest one first, and we just move through it that way. <clears throat> so this is Dorothy Flack. She was actually born <clears throat> Dorothy McDaniel in 1902 in New Jersey, and her father was the um, pastor at the Hoboken Lutheran Church. At the age of uh, 15, she got out of school and uh, worked in New York City at a uh, import business selecting uh, fashions for women to be um, sold at an import company, producing catalogs and stuff of uh, all types of stuff, but her section was just women's clothing. 
But then by the age of 18, she was already a fashion designer, making her own ideas of what um, would be a cool-looking clothing. Then um, when the Great War was over, um, she married her second cousin, whose name was Walter Flack. And he was uh, 20 years old and uh, was a veteran and a lieutenant and served overseas. And um, two weeks after they were married, he went on a hunting trip with his best friend and was accidentally killed. And uh, so both of them, <clears throat> after they had been married, did not tell their parents about it. And they both continued to live at their parents' homes and for whatever reason. And during the police investigation, during this accidental death of her husband, um, it came out that uh, she was married to him. And so her parents were shocked to find out that their 19-year-old um, daughter was a, um, a widow. And, but she began to be known from then on as Dorothy Flack instead of Dorothy McDaniel. And she never um, remarried, and she uh, never had any children. So um, she started drawing in this style that was very popular at the time um, when the frizzy-haired Mary Pickford was um, uh, the, the most important thing uh, from womanhood in America at that time. And she was hired by William Randolph Hearst and became a nationwide syndicated artist drawing um, these little beautiful little frizzy-haired um, characters that appeared on women's pages and have sometimes women's fiction and stuff like that. And uh, she then, from that also, was um, making beautiful drawings for, um, again, women's type magazines, romantic magazines. And she's probably uh, um, the most widely exposed, I guess. And she was so popular that they began to use her pen and ink drawings on the covers. Um, but in each time, she was still just a pen and ink line artist. So they had some other person that was a, a, a specialist called a colorist, and they would actually do the, um, the coloring during the printing process. So. Um, She, uh, as time went on, she kept trying to, um, uh, you know, keep her stuff lively uh, and not just always look like Mary Pickford. And she started, um, she probably was the, the highest paid, but she's the most frequently appearing um, Dorothy Flack signature in um, a Love Pulps. But uh, she also, uh, would use photographs of um, movie stars and so that her characters, instead of looking like Mary Pickford, started looking like Judy Garland or Ginger Rogers and stuff like that. And um, she primarily, you know, um, worked for All Story Love. She did a tremendous amount of work for them, but she also worked for like Love Story. And in fact, most of the women um, women's type pulp magazines uh, were the most lucrative of all pulps. So if you took them out of the field, the actual field may have collapsed under its own weight. And so the, 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 there was a, a huge contribution in terms of the volume of pulps that were sold that were two women. And they were usually uh, almost always, I can think of as just romance or Western romance type themes. But she continued to to work um, until 1941. And uh, all of her work has a kind of a angelic sweetness to it, basically. And, but by 1941, uh, that actually had become out of date and there was more interest in some sort of a more of a sultry kind of women and stuff. So she retired uh, from illustration and moved to California uh, she was remained in the field of fashion because that was where she had begun. And I, I suppose if you wanted to catalog all her works, her the clothing that people are wearing and all of her things are probably up to date. You know, every single illustration from 1922 to 1941 that she does. 
but the last thing I found on her was in 1963, and there was a, a notice in a newspaper about um, a charity that was selling Easter hats, and the, the quote said um, that these hats were donated from all of the top New York City hat shops through an exclusive arrangement by Dorothy Flack. So in 1963, she still had some sort of a fashion pull uh, in that thing. She bought a house in Santa Monica, and she lived to the age of 87. The next person we're going to look at is Thelma Gooch. Um, she's born in 1895 in Cleveland, and her mother was Frances Pusey. I'd never heard of her, but um, she was a, an authoress of plays and novels. And uh, so that had to a big, a big factor in her um, interest in becoming an illustrator. And her father was named Robert Gooch, and he was an insurance salesman. He was very successful. He traveled all over the world. She graduated high school in 1913, and um, she was really interested in becoming an artist. Um, unfortunately, uh, in 1914, her dad had a nervous breakdown, and... Um, of all things, there, there was a new clinic in New York City and that was uh, to treat people with uh, psychiatric problems. And I, I'm not sure that it was probably extremely unique. So the whole family left Cleveland and moved to New York City. The person that ran the uh, sanitarium was named Dr. Elliot Dold. And uh, he had two sons, Douglas Dold and Elliot Dold Jr. And Elliot Dold Jr. was an artist, and um, Douglas Dold was a renowned, would grow up to become a renowned uh, pulp editor. Uh, and they were both really interesting characters. So the Elliot Dold Jr. was studying at the um, New York um, Art Students League, and he convinced Thelma Gooch, who wanted to be an artist, to, to go, go with him and attend the school. So they studied with Frank Dumont and George Bridgman, who at that time were probably, uh, I would think, the best art teachers in America. So um, she uh, worked with uh, Frank Dumont and uh, uh, became like an extremely accomplished illustrator and uh, in the 1920s, she was illustrating, um, again, children's books and romance books. So uh, women are kind of marginalized into these topics. But um, she was uh, quite successful. And um, she lived up in New Rochelle, which was where uh, Rockwell and Lyondecker and um, Howard Chandler Christie all were in this kind of... Uh, Shishi, but anyway, it was definitely like a hip place for um, the top illustrators to live, Cole Phillips. And uh, by the time the 1930s rolled around, uh, children's books were too expensive, basically, for most families. So um, along with all the other industries that were kind of devastated by the Great Depression, the children's book industry slowed down considerably. And uh, so she had to look for some other kind of work. And at the time, uh, the, one of the, the only thing that was really selling like hotcakes were pulps, oddly enough, because they were, you could buy them for a couple of pennies, and they were tons of vast entertainment for everybody. So she started drawing pulps, and uh, she worked for like All Story Loves, Sweetheart Stories, Cupid's Diary, Ranch Romances, and Love Story but she always left her work unsigned because she had already had this pretty big reputation as a children's book illustrator. And I guess maybe some of those stories might be slightly racy or something, but not, they're not really. But she just wanted to preserve her reputation as a children's book illustrator. So here's one of the rare examples of, a, of her work which was signed. Um, you can see it maybe in the lower uh, right corner. It says Gooch. Um, so she was really prolific, and she had a kind of a, a fun and playful way of drawing. Uh, 
and they're still self-expressive of her character. Like if you get into it, you can recognize it from thing to thing. Even though like in this instance, if you look in the lower right corner, it's signed Dan O'Dare. And uh, I, I was puzzled over why it's called Dan O'Dare, uh, but it's a man's name, but um, Dan O'Dare, there's not too many Irish people called O'Dare, but um, I, you know, I was thinking about it and, and um, it seemed like a turn of a phrase of the whole thing was just done on a dare, but I don't know, pure conjecture. Her fame as a children's book illustrator um, did last throughout the depression and in 1941, Grosset and Dunlap published the Thelma Gooch ABCs and you see her name at the top of the book. So she continued to draw, um, even after 1941, um, interior illustrations for pulp magazines for another 10 years. She never married and she had no children. In 1960, she retired completely and moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, where she lived to the age of 78. That's not so next one we got is um, Marjorie Stocking. She's born in 1888 in East Orange, New Jersey, and her father was a very successful newspaper editor. <clears throat> she first demonstrated artistic talent when she was seven years old and astonished her mom and dad by drawing incredibly lifelike portraits of everyone in the family. She studied with the famous William Merritt Chase Art School, which is a spun off from uh, the Art Students League because they were too stodgy and Chase wanted it to be more radical. Um, but when she also went to study at the Art Students League, she studied with the same teacher <clears throat> that Thelma Gooch had, Frank Dumont. And Dumont also had a, a second school in uh, Connecticut called the Old Lyme School. And, um, so she would go up there in the summers and study with him up there, which is kind of a, a bohemian artist colony. And um, so that was a big part of her early life. In uh, 1914, um, she had uh, her own column in newspapers illustrating um, topics that were maybe they thought related to woman uh, subject matter. <clears throat> but I can't think of a single other um, illustrator of pulps that had a newspaper column. Um, and one of the most remarkable things I found was that in 1916, when Griffith brought out his um, uh, Birth of a Nation, <clears throat> in nationwide ads for the Birth of a Nation, it says that um, Marjorie Stocking of the New York Herald highly recommends it. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Um, so she married a, <clears throat> a guy that she'd met at the uh, old Limes Art School. And um, he was a veteran and an archeologist, but um, uh, she was already uh, 40 years old. And uh, so they had no children and they lived with her parents in Brooklyn. And even though she was married, she continued to always work under the name Marjorie Stocking. Um, she began to draw um, illustrations for Blue Book, and you can see in the, uh, down here in the corner, it says there's an interwoven MS signature, and um, that was uh, all she was ever known as in Pulps. She, her, I don't believe her name was ever printed out. Um, <clears throat> during World War II, she, uh, replaced you know, the uh, male uh, cover artists and became a, um, uh, instead of just a line artist, she became a cover artist. Um, and her work continued to appear for the next 14 years. Um, it was some kind of an idea that the editors had that uh, uh, the uh, artists that were women would be more appealing to uh, the women readers um, for ranch romances. And so the, in fact, the authors and the artists in ranch romances uh, 
typically have women's names, even though many of them are men. And so uh, men were working here under uh, feminine type names. So everything about her work is kind of cute, I think, and um, uh, just kind of adorable. Um, but I, uh, I think it's, I, I look at her work and I can recognize there's something um, within her personality that's uh, very positive as a person. So I, I, I consider it com completely self-expressive. That that's, it's not as if she's trying to uh, make cheerful stories for people. I think she just happens to be that kind of person. And these always just have an MS somewhere. Like in this case, it's on the woman's green skirt. By the end of the war, she'd um, painted 45 covers for the ranch romances. But the patriotic ethic of the times was that uh, when the soldiers returned from the war, the women were supposed to um, um, vacate their jobs. Uh, even though women had, you know, these were once restricted positions that women never had a chance to do before. But Rosie DeRiviger, you know, uh, left the assembly line at the end of the war. And so Marjorie Stocking did the same thing. And she um, obligingly retired. She moved to San Francisco and worked as an art teacher at an art school out there. And then her and her husband uh, moved back to uh, Connecticut and uh, near Old Lyme where they had met, and um, she had a, uh, she would make uh, still lives and landscapes and sell them at tourist shops. And in 1979, she had a uh, retrospective show, and uh, that was how I found out that she was responsible for all this stuff because they had her still lives and um, landscapes, but then they had these remarkable pen and ink illustrations and these covers for that were all signed MS. And so that was uh, eye-opening for me. One of the reporters that interviewed her, um, there's a great quote, I'll just read it. She said, these paintings are my children. I'm so happy to see them on display. My only remaining ambition is to live to be 100 and to have another one-man show, unquote. In those days, it's a one-man show. But um, in fact, in 1986, she did have a second one-person show and it was at uh, the healthcare center where she and her husband were residents, where she lived to be 105. Now we're on to Zoe Mozart. She was born Alice Adele Moser in 1907 in Colorado. In 1921, uh, her dad invented a, uh, a cast iron stove. And uh, so they were gonna manufacture it in Philadelphia. So the whole family moved to Philadelphia. So she was raised in Philadelphia. And during her teenage years, she studied at the Philadelphia Museum School of Industrial Art. And that's a cool school because the teacher was Thornton Oakley and he had been a student of Howard Pyle. And um, uh, uh, like his best friend was N.C. Wyeth. And uh, so Wyeth would come by and teach at the school and stuff uh, as, a, as a just, to bum around with his old friends. And uh, she won a scholarship to go to New York and study at the Art Students League. And um, she, while there, she started working for magazines. And she adopted the name Zoe Mozart. And so her, her birth name was Moser, but she thought Mozart was more catchy. And she came up with the name uh, Zoe. She said, quote, I looked through a name dictionary for a new first name and I, I just couldn't find any I liked until I finally got to the last page, and that's where I saw Zoe, so I took it. <laughs> uh, by, by no, uh, it's just a coincidence, but my daughter's named Zoe. Um, during the Great Depression, she created a lot of really sensuous and glamorous colors for pulp magazines, such as Love Revels, Nightlife Tales, and uh, Smart Love Stories. As an odd, odd thing about her uh, as a person is that uh, she was uh, quite good looking and she uh, earned a lot of her income uh, during her struggling years as a model for other artists. And so she appears in a lot of other artists' work and she's actually featured uh, in a lot of the earliest work by H.J. Ward, 
Um, when you see a, a blonde in the early works, um, it's always her modeling for him. But she also uh, would set up with her camera with an auto timer and photograph herself so that she also appeared in her own uh, magazine. All of her advertisements frequently used herself uh, in them. She worked for like American Weekly and Romantic Movie Stories and Screen Stories as well as uh, pulp magazines. And Fawcett Publications that produces Romantic Story Magazine and True Confessions um, became like a, a, a major, um, oh, I messed up my pages. Give me a second here. Uh, why did that happen? Oh well, maybe I can do it without her. So anyway, uh, she, she, she did a ton of work for um, Fawcett Publications, she became like their real um, top artist. And she uh, produced her work with um, um, pastel on paper rather than oil on canvas. And that was a technique that Ralph Armstrong and Earl Christie um, and uh, uh, Earl Moran all did sensuous pinups using um, um, pastel on paper. And she became really, really good at it. And she did ads for like um, magazines like uh, Dr. Pepper, Cool Cigarettes, and uh, Irresistible Beauty Aids. Um, and so she did all these ads because there were f uh, famous actors and actresses from Hollywood that were endorsing the products. And, and everybody in Hollywood really liked her portraits of them. So that was kind of, it became a, an ideal. And so when Hollywood produced a film called True Confessions, they hired her to do the poster for it. And she became more involved with the Hollywood. So it's kind of a little bit like a self-fulfilling prophecy or something. She also did the controversial uh, poster for um, The Outlaw. Um, after the war, she got a 15-year um, contract to work with Brown and Bigelow, and, uh, which was the, big, uh, most, the most successful uh, calendar manufacturer in America. So she basically was in millions and millions of homes during that time. And you know she made good money then. So um, in 1978, she retired from illustration, moved to Arizona, where she continued to do portraits of people. And she lived to the age of 85. And that's Zoe Mozart. Now we're on to the famous Margaret Brundage. She was born Margaret Hedda Johnson. Um, am I going too fast? Is this just too much information? No. Kind of sickening, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're all a lot older than you would imagine, I think. Like, uh, she was born in 1900. Um, she was raised by her mother and her grandmother, who were devout Christian scientists. So that sort of set the pace a little bit for uh, an unusual streak in, Mar in Margaret Brundage. Um, she graduated from high school and studied fashion design at the Chicago Academy of Fine Arts. In 1925, she got her first professional job drawing pen and ink drawings for the fashion industry. And in 1927, she married a guy named Myron Slim Brundage. And they had a son, uh, Carrie Lynn Brundage. And uh, her husband was a labor activist. And for that reason, it was uh, he was constantly being fired from his job as he would try to uh, unionize wherever he was. And he, I don't know if it's connected or not, but he was a severe alcoholic also. So he was not a, able to support the family and was in fact not even around most of the time because um, I guess the forces you know, were looking for him. So he kind of had to, he was a, 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 neglect, a negligent uh, parent. So her Christian Science uh, mother moved in with him to help raise the, the son. Her first uh, pulp cover was in uh, 
the summer issue 1932 of Oriental Stories. And she went on to produce uh, covers for the same publisher, such as The Magic Carpet and The Legendary Weird Tales. So Brundage sold uh, 66 covers to Weird Tales from 1932 to 1945. Her work, um, always features sensuous women in fantastical situations. Her covers were really popular with the readers. And I think I, I probably have it wrong, but it's something true in this statement that it's like Ray Bradbury or somebody or uh, Asmanoff or somebody said, the first time I ever saw a nude woman in my life was a Margaret Brundage cover of Weird Tales. And I just became fascinated with the fantasy fiction because of that. So it's weird that you could maybe say she you know, influenced him. But um, some people wrote in letters objecting to her, um, the sexuality in the covers. But you know, she always signed everything M. Brundage. So uh, it was a gender neutral um, name. So the editor thought maybe he could silence these critics by somehow, uh, so he publicly revealed the fact that, aha, well, you think these are really horrible, but in fact, they're, they're created by a woman. So I don't know if that calmed the storm or not, but it made her even more uh, sensational to the readers, thinking that, wow, I mean, I've been looking at sexual fantasies of a woman, not of another guy. And so um, that had to have been a sort of a, a wake-up call for people. So this particular cover right here is in the news lately because it, it sold a couple weeks ago for $72,000. Aside from her like remarkable um, aesthetic approach to making pulp art, she's also you know another one of, of the women, another one of the artists that had a unique thing of working as pastel on paper instead of a canvas. And so it's just a, a lot of um, unique things about her. After the publishers of Weird Tales moved to New York City um, in 1938, uh, Brundage never really again found a, a, a replacement as a steady publisher, so of having constant you know, source of income. But she continued to create work and um, she, for her own appetite, she also made equally fantastic uh, artwork of her own, uh, which has never been shown, and that um, she just kept for herself. And uh, she did it for the rest of her life. Uh, she finally won a divorce against her husband for negligence, and uh, it's kind of unusual for a woman uh, to win that type of thing in those days. So again, uh, it's a, a strange life of struggle. Um, Margaret Spundage spent the rest of her life in utter poverty uh, and lived to the age of 75. This is a, a fun one uh, for me. This is Alice Kirkpatrick. She's born in 1912 in Huntsville, Alabama. In 1930, at the age of 17, she graduated from high school and she studied art courses from the International Correspondence School of Scranton, PA. This is the same school where Rudy Bilarski got all of his training. Uh, in 1935, she left Alabama and moved to New York to seek her fortune as a commercial artist. She began to illustrate uh, stories in pulp magazines, uh, at first primarily from Ace magazines, and her work is signed Kirk. And I spent many years trying to find out who Kirk was. She also worked, you know, for like Love Book and Love Fiction and um, Complete Love, but um, they all have Kirk, K-I-R-K, written in the corner, um, which is you know, a masculine sounding name. She also created uh, dust jackets for a couple hardcovers in New York City. And um, in 1949, she began to uh, have a whole new career as a romance comic book illustrator. And again, um, she had done, these are from the same publisher that you know, she was working for before, but they were producing love, love comics. So she worked uh, 
for real love comics, all romances, love at first sight, revealing romances, glamorous romances, 10 story love. And I only repeat that long list because I'm trying to build a case that she actually has a very significant career. She did a ton of work. Now, I don't know if everybody knows this guy, Lou Cameron, but he was, started out as an artist and he became also a really good paperback writer, I'm told. And he had this uh, quote about Alice Kirkpatrick that I, if you'll forgive me, I will read to you for a minute. It's a little long, but it's cool. This is uh, Lou Cameron talking. Alice Kirkpatrick was one of the finest romance illustrators in the business. She was the mainstay at Ace Romances during the Golden Age. Her girls were the prettiest. Alice Kirkpatrick was so good it was discouraging. If she was a guy, I would have hated her guts. She blocked out her compositions with a couple of pencil lines and worked entirely freehand. She worked with a semi-dry brush and could get the effect of a human eye or the notch in a woman's lapel with a glob of half-dried goo. The results were Liz Taylor and Lizbeth Scott playing opposite Gregory Peck with a stylish suburban landscape in the background. Kirk's stuff was up to the standards of slick romance illustration. Last I heard, she owned a couple of fancy apartments up in the 70s on the west side, and she hangs out with the jet set. Alice was something in her own right. On top of being a great artist, she was one hellishly beautiful woman. She looked like a cross between Deborah Carr and Katherine Hepburn. My own standing offer of matrimony still stands. <laughs> Never, I hasten to add, voiced aloud to Miss Kirkpatrick, because we were, as the columnists say, just friends. Matter of fact, I don't think I made any impression on her at all. Sob. <laughs> Unquote. She never married, and she had no children. In 1977, at the age of 65, she retired from commercial art and moved to Florida, where she lived to the age of 84. All right, this one, you gotta fasten your seat belts for this one. This is Irene Zimmerman. She's born in 1907 in Brooklyn. Her father, Frederick Zimmerman, was born in Germany. Her mother, Emily Endress, was born in Hungary. They lived in Brooklyn in the home of her grandma and grandpa, who were the Endress, grandma and grandpa Endress, and they owned a Hungarian restaurant in New York. In 1923, Irene completed the 10th grade of high school and entered the workforce as a clerical worker. Every weekend, she studied free art classes at the Brooklyn Museum of Art. In 1929, Irene Zimmerman was 22 years old and earning an income as a freelance commercial artist. She sold several cover paintings to the Golden Book magazine, a literary monthly with short stories and serialized novels. She also illustrated hard-covered dust jackets for Grosset and Dunlap. In the 1930s, during the Great Depression, Irene Zimmerman began to draw pen and ink interior illustrations for spicy pulps, like La Paris and Pep Stories. Most artists who worked for these uh, erotic magazines preferred to leave them unsigned, uh, but for whatever reason, she signs them with her full name, Irene Zimmerman, which you could, if you have a microscope, you can see it in the lower, right, lower left corner. In 19, she, she, she also, uh, in 1934, sold two cover illustrations to Liberty Magazine. These are probably her most prestigious assignments from her entire career. At that time, Liberty Magazine had the second largest circulation of any magazine in the world. Of course, Saturday Evening Post was number one. But even though she got these assignments, um, uh, she continued to work as a pulp illustrator. And during World War II, um, her career only got bigger in the pulps. And she was offered work uh, for different publishers. Um, rather than signing Irene Zimmerman, she began to sign them um, Irene Endress using her mom's maiden name. Um, is it another odd thing? She, when she worked for Street and Smith, she signed her work Robert E. Lee. <laughs> and uh, you'll see a couple of really nice 
pulps, uh, like Western Story and stuff, is signed Robert E. Lee. And uh, if you're wondering how I ever put that one together, uh, she, um, uh, when one of her Liberty assignments that she got, she signed it three times on the cover because it was such big exposure to millions of people. She didn't want to be known only as Irene Zimmerman because she also had something invested in Irene Endress and Robert E. Lee. So all three names appear. <laughs> and uh, in, in, in the thing. And so I was like, uh, yeah, why would that be, right? Anyway. Here's a bizarre one. In 1942, Rangeland Romance introduced a new monthly feature called My Big Moment by Irene Endress. And there's an introductory paragraph uh, right up there, and it says the following, quote, somewhere laid carefully away among the cherished memories of every girl is her life's one big moment. Irene Endress, gifted young artist, has been retained by Rangeland Romances to illustrate these moments in the lives of its readers. Please send us a brief account of your own big moment today. Perhaps in the next issue, yours may appear on this page, unquote. So from 1945 to 1947, she painted 11 covers for detective mystery pulps such as Crack Detective, Speed Detective, uh, and 10 Detective Aces. And she signed these mystery pulps with the gender neutral name, just Endress. All of these uh, mystery covers featured characters that the face and the hands that were directly swiped from Rafael de Soto. Uh, at that time, he was the top cover artist of this type of genre. And this led to the mistaken but popular belief that Endress was a pen name for DeSoto rather than a pen name for uh, Irene Zimmerman. And, um, but that's the true story. For the rest of her life, Irene Zimmerman continued to live in the Endress family home in Brooklyn. She never married and she had no children. She died at home at the age of 59 in 1967, and is buried in the Endress family plot in Brooklyn's Greenwood Cemetery. One of the things that people always say about male pulp artists is that, and male, and, uh, male pulp writers, is that they're a bunch of alcoholics. Um, there's some truth to that, but that's not a completely true statement. Um, and a similar thing occurs to me with Irene Zimmerman is that you could make a sort of a blanket statement that all women pulp artists uh, had unsuccessful marriages and no children. Um, it's, a, a, it's not actually a, a completely true statement, but it is, uh, it helps, I think, to appreciate the uh, challenges and, and struggles that they had to have as people that um, wanted a career in a field in which they were unwelcome. So um, the one exception to it is Gloria Stoll. She's born 1923 in a place that she calls the Bronx. Her mother was Anne Vera Fenimore and her father was Charles Theophil Stoll. Gloria was her only child. Her dad was a World War I uh, veteran. He received the uh, Distinguished Service Cross and the Croix de Guerre. I think he was a colonel when he finally retired. He was a commercial artist and had an advertising business with Raymond Thayer, who was another pulp illustrator. But uh, when the Depression came, he had to close the advertising because that's, uh, all advertising was completely devastated because manufacturing didn't exist during the Great Depression. In 1936, Little Gloria went to uh, Music and Art, the first semester it ever opened. And um, unfortunately, uh, two years later, in her junior year, her father died of a cerebral hemorrhage. And so the mom uh, had to raise her. And she got a job working for um, uh, Universal Pictures uh, as a clerical worker at uh, Rockefeller Center. And uh, in 1940, when she graduated from the Music and Art High School, she had hoped to get a, a scholarship to go study at one of the great art schools in New York City, like Pratt or Cooper Union. But in fact, the women uh, 
never received those. Those always went to boy students. Um, so the best that she could get was a scholarship to something called the Display Institute, where uh, young women artists were supposedly trained to be display um, technicians or display graphic type people. But in fact, it, it was only a commercial business and they were just um, paying tuition and receiving no income. And so uh, she really hated working for this place and after a few months she just quit. And um, she found a, a paying job instead at an insurance company which paid well, but she really, really hated that job. And so she's working there for a couple of months and she was so angry about everything, I guess, that she took her art portfolio and threw it in the incinerator at her um, tenement that she lived in in Brooklyn. The janitor in the building, this all comes down a chute into the basement and he loads it into the furnace or else out to the garbage. But um, he saw her artwork and said, wow, this stuff is great. I think I'll show it to that guy, Rafael De Soto, who lives on the third floor. And so <laughs> she took it up to him and he said, what, she threw this out? I mean, she has a lot of talent. Tell her to come up right now to the house. And, and so she came running up there um, and he said, yeah, you know, you can do it. And uh, in fact, you could use my, my place as a studio. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Ralph was the sweetest guy on earth. He was married at the time, Marion. And um, that's just what he was like. He was a really, really nice guy. So she became his uh, assistant. And, um, you know, she uh, uh, worked with him for a long time, helping him to do his stuff. And then he helped her to get uh, some assignments uh, for, for the publisher he was working for. So she became a, um, uh, you know, her own uh, artist. And, uh, but they still shared a studio for like five years or something. And she began to do um, mystery pulps, which is unusual because women were always seeing and doing love type stuff. But she was literally uh, 18, 19 years old by the time. And so it was quite remarkable that there was this person doing this. Um, she worked also for like um, other titles too, D Detective Tales, Black Mask and stuff. Uh, you could see that she's um, uh, influenced by Rafael de Soto and you know, they, they're, they're a little hard to distinguish from each other and she never signed her work uh, for these mystery type pulps. Um, but in fact, de Soto, although he was such a sweet guy, he was really truly uh, a Spaniard and uh, so he was, I knew him my whole life growing up and stuff, and uh, he was always grappling with questions uh, that I, I would consider, anyway, so he was a devout Catholic, and um, he, if you've ever seen any uh, churches in Spain, um, the, uh, the, the altars and the statues and the paintings and stuff are remarkably gruesome. And so uh, there's something devout and sweet about Ralph, but there's also something kind of gruesome about his work. And um, uh, there's nothing like that in her work. So her work is similar to his in every way, except there's a, a out and out sweetness in her work that she's doing. I don't know why, but they both seem like nice people rather than like a horrible conflict <laughs> to me. And so again, I, I like the idea that, you know, we can all be given an assignment and someone says, go make something just horrible, make horrible things. And, and she goes, oh, okay. And then she makes these really sweet things and brings them back. And so people start out thinking, oh, I'm selling my soul to the devil when I go to work for someone else as a commercial artist because I should be home making work that expresses my stuff. But in fact, she really is expressing herself. I mean, that's uh, the best way you can tell her work from his work is that she just has this... Uh, you really can imagine this 19-year-old girl is responsible for this, and they have a, 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 her spirit comes through, you know? So anyway, for like the next eight years, um, she just kept selling um, tons and tons of work uh, for uh, mystery pulps that come from popular, but also primarily uh, she did tons and tons of love stuff so all story love, love novels, love short stories, new love, 
rangeland romances and romance western. Again, she's, she did tons of interiors, but lots and lots of covers too. While she was doing uh, all this work, she continued to study. She went to the Art Students League. She studied at the Society of Illustrators. And one of her teachers that she was most influenced by, she said, was Harvey Dunn. And it's just interesting because Dunn, along with Thornton Oakley and N.C. Wyeth, was also a pupil of Howard Pyle. So here we see this nice legacy going on. Her um, career abruptly ended um, in 1949 when she married uh, Fred Karn and they moved to Pittsburgh because he was teaching at Carnegie Mellon in the coal industry as a, as a chemist. And, uh, but she, they raised three children um, and she's always continued to paint and draw and to make collages and she also became an art teacher. Um, so her work was exhibited at the Brooklyn Museum, the Carnegie Museum of Art and everybody's shocked. Last year she had a a solo show at the Norman Rockwell Museum in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, she still lives in Pittsburgh and she's still hard at work and she's 95 years old. <laughs> well, that's it. So if you uh, want to see more detailed things or find out about the other uh, eight women, other 10 women working in pulps, go ahead to uh, pulpartist.com. And I'm going to be here until Sunday morning, but uh, if, you, if you want to ask me anything and you don't want to stand up and make a fool of yourself, you can just talk to me anytime I'll be here. But if you like to stand up and, uh, and want to bring the conversation into another area, please ask any questions you have. Unless Mike says that's it, let's do the next one. Someone told me I'm called the Great Disruptor. No, no, no. That's fine. we got a lot to do tonight, so... You've been listening to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines, for over 20 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. The Pulp Event Podcast is copyright 2019.